0: And Popper leaves for corner. Magnificent! It's Morais, he's done it again! He has fizzed it into the bottom corner.
1: And Vardy for Chowdhury.
0: He's set for Manizana! He is one bright young
1: thing! Alison saw Salah running from his own half, so here, Mo Salah. Salah to settling! In front of the clock! There's no feeling like that feeling! And now you've got to believe them. You have got to believe them! Hey everyone, welcome back to the 3PL podcast and welcome back to our 20th episode. We really appreciate everyone for sticking with us this long. And we're really looking forward to continuing our journey on this podcast. We're going to start the podcast this week with our guest, Jasper, who's a friend of Peter's, a qualified FA referee. Um, We'll be chatting to him about VAR and some of the controversy of the season that's been swarmed around VAR. Without any further ado, we'll go straight into that. So, Peter, can you introduce Jasper?
0: Yeah, so I'm very pleased to have uh, Jasper joining us. Jasper's recently qualified as a referee, I think, back in November. You said so, fairly new to the game, but I know it's something you've been sort of keen on for a long time. So yeah, we're excited to get your opinion on a few bits. Do you want to give us a, a little sort of background to how you how you got into becoming a referee and and <laughs> sort of why it's something that interests you?
2: I was going to say my career, inverted commas, uh, of, uh, of which hasn't been uh, a particular, <laughs> particular <laughs> renown, if we're honest. But yeah, no, I've, I've, as you say, I've been qualified since November as a level seven FA referee. Because uh, of COVID, I haven't been able to referee many games, but it, it has like, helped me have like a massive new respect for referees at the highest level and getting your head around the decision-making process in as much as you can. Because it's, it's difficult to compare, like, Myself as, a, as like a grassroots level referee compared to some of the things we're going to talk about probably in the Premier League because it's completely different kettle of fish with VAR and some of the the things that the refs have to look out for. But yeah, no, I, I, it, it's something I've done for quite a while, but I've only been like officially qualified, so I've been doing pro- proper games again in verticomers since since November time.
0: Brilliant. Well, I guess no better place to start than some of the, the recent controversial moments that we've seen in the Premier League. Um, I think the, the freshest in all of our minds happened earlier this week in the, the Man City game with um, a goal scored by Cancelo when uh, I think the lines, or lines woman, I should probably say, I don't know what the correct terminology actually is in that instance. Just, just go with um, assist, she assistant raised her referee. Flag. <laughs> she assistant referee, there we go. <laughs> I think she, uh, she raised her flag, obviously flagged for the offside. A few of the defenders stopped, obviously thought that the... The game had been stopped, but as far as I'm aware, the referee didn't blow the whistle. The goal was scored, and obviously on the after the VAR check, the goal was allowed. I think probably the defenders probably felt a bit aggrieved, but probably the right decision in the end. What, what's your view on that one?
2: Yeah, it's difficult because you can see both sides of the coin. But with VAR, that's one of the things that the, the refs have been told to do, both in terms of blowing their whistle and in terms of the assistant flagging, is to delay it as long as possible. Um, and, let, and let a phase of play play out. As I say, assistants have been instructed to keep their flags down basically as long as possible, dependent on their own interpretation. And this is where we start to get into grey areas of what you call an immediate goal-scoring opportunity. If they suspect offside, they have to let the play go on until there's a, like a very obvious stop and, and the ball goes dead. Ultimately, Sean Masialis, who is the assistant here, who, by by the way, is like one of the best, if not the best, uh, assistant referee probably currently in the Premier League, did probably raise her flag. Uh, too early because what, what it meant was because she's uh, on the, in the left back spot and the ball was on the right wing, all the West Brom players were turned towards her. So in their periphery, even though they're not looking directly at her, they see that the flag goes up. So your natural instinct when that happens is to stop. Obviously, they all stopped and the City players all carried on. And by the time that Cancello, I think, actually shot the ball when it went in, I think none of the uh, West Brom players were even looking at the ball or looking at uh, Cancello. They were just obviously focused on on what they'd seen at, the, at their peripheral vision or corner of their eye or whatever with, with the assistant. So it's the old adage, isn't it? Play to the whistle that, that West Brom ultimately will probably undone by there. But, you know, it's, it's one of those. It's probably going to be something that we see more of given, you know, the VAR situation now. But I don't know. Obviously, it's not something that, again, I've experienced or I've never actually refereed a game with assistants. So it's not something I can really talk about because um, that only starts to come in at a certain, at a certain level of refereeing. But yeah, it's, it's all about the timing of, you know, as I said at the start, like when you blow your whistle or when the ref, sorry, when the on-field ref blows his whistle and the, the assistant puts the flag up. So yeah, unfortunate, but I think the right thing happened because as I say, that's what the assistants have been encouraged to do. Like you've got to play on.
0: Yeah one one sort of quick follow up question on that particular incident. I mean one thing I've noticed in a few games where the flag has been raised uh, uh, obviously delayed um as the assistants are supposed to do they're supposed to delay the raising the flag to let the phase of play continue. I've quite often seen the players getting really like frustrated and angry at the assistant for raising the flag so late. Do you think that in some way feeds into the some of the issues with the public perception of how VAR is being implemented? That potentially if the players are showing that frustration, it makes it look to the average viewer as if the assistant or the referee has done something wrong, rather than it actually just being the players getting frustrated with the way the game is played at the moment?
2: I'd say that's completely fair. And I think, you know... Your average armchair fan, to use quite a lazy stereotype phrase, already hates VAR probably as it is. So any extra dissenting evidence that it happens on pitch or from a pundit or commentator or whatever, they're going to latch onto, and it's just a very easy stick to beat football with nowadays. That it's got to be VAR's fault, um, and unfortunately, some of the things which are happening in the Premier League nowadays, or in, and in other leagues that use VAR are as a result of slightly amended guidance that has come into play because of VAR. Um, There are some other instances as well where it's just bringing up laws that people didn't know. And I think we'll come on to one when we talk about perhaps the uh, Rodri offside, which was offside and then now wouldn't be offside. But yeah, no, I I think that's a very fair point. And it's, it's something that... You know, they've got to manage, but I don't really know how they do it because once, you know, people make up their minds and they, they think that VAR is is not a good thing, then anything, you know, that happens, like this particular incident, particularly if you're a West Brom fan, obviously, is, is going to uh, not help your cause. So, yeah.
1: And do you think we've come too far with VAR as it is now? Do you think that it's set in stone to an extent where you can't reverse some of the rules that have been brought in, in terms of like this raising your offside flag when, you know, otherwise you'd? raise it a lot earlier if the, if the ball goes dead or things like this? Would you think you, it's too late to change it for next season? Or do you think now that we've brought them in, it's kind of here to stay?
2: Uh, I think it's here to stay. I think we're just in that awkward, probably uh, limbo phase of having to, you know, go through some uncomfortable decisions, both for players, fans alike. Like, I I don't know whether there's anything that they've brought in, which is going to be completely taken out again I mean obviously we've seen again to use the the Man City Rodri offside as an example they've tweaked the law they haven't changed it um, or they've added in a little side note so that they can help uh, the referees and the VAR implement the the law properly as as it's intended in the future but yeah generally I I don't think that that's going to change it'll be down to the players and down to coaching staff as well to drill uh, players to actually you know in that instance, keep playing onto the whistle and keep playing as if the assistant hasn't actually raised their flag. Because at at the end of the day, it's the referee's prerogative to stop the game and blow the whistle. Um, The assistant's flag is just a signal for the referee, not anybody else. Um, Obviously, they're all mic'd up and communicating constantly anyway. So, yeah, just one of those things, I think, is here to stay. And and, and players and and fans and, and managers and coaching staff, as I say, have to adapt accordingly.
1: Yeah, so one of the more notable instances earlier on in the season was that that challenge from Jordan Pickford on Virgil Van Dyke. We saw a really bad entry to Virgil Van Dyke as a result, and I guess the way VAR was used in that instance probably wasn't correct. It seemed like it was used retrospectively, and there was no, you know, repercussions for what was a really really poor tackle for Jordan Pickford. But because the play was dead, there were there was almost nothing the referee could do. So, do you think that's something that needs to change going forward to stop players from getting? really bad injuries when you know they shouldn't have to be in that position.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's very awkward, to be honest with you, and uh, that's probably the biggest mistake that we've seen with VAR so far uh, this season. I think it was David Coote who was the man behind the screen at the time. Um, the thing is, you can, even though the player is dead, you can still get a, a red card for serious foul play, um, which was absolutely what that challenge by Pickford was on Van Dijk. I think if anybody looked at that in isolation, regardless of the context, they'd have said it was a red card. Basically, what happened is, I, th- I think, Coote reviewed for the, the penalty by checking the offside. So he obviously thought there was a potential foul. But then for some reason, once it was proved to be offside, he then didn't go back and uh, do a, an official red card review for some unknown reason. Um, because, as I say, you can still be sent off um, following a, a serious foul play tackle that endangered the safety of an opponent, use excessive force, blah, 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 blah. So, so that was literally in as much as at the time there was a massive hoo-ha about it, fundamentally that was a a process error by the man in Stockley Park that was responsible for a whole host of confusion. I think there there were so many conflicting media reports. I think the punch in the Sky Sports studio didn't have a clue what was going on. The commentators didn't know. It was only when I think the PGMOL came out on maybe the Monday or the Tuesday after because Liverpool, I think, had asked for an official review into that incident. That they came out with a statement saying, "Look, we got it wrong. Um, that shouldn't have happened. It won't happen again." Tail very much between their legs. But that is one of those instances where, and I don't think there've been too many of them, where either the VAR or the on-field referee has really messed up, and that's you know, it's it's not something that the rules didn't allow for, or sorry, the laws didn't allow for. I should say it was just human error, and that's the thing about. VAR, football, refereeing, whatever, there's always going to be a subjective element and there's always going to be the potential for human error. And that's something, again, building what we said earlier, that we just have to get used to. Occasionally, mistakes are still going to slip through the net.
0: Yeah, I guess the the other incident that has happened recently, where you could argue that the wrong decision was made regardless of VAR, I mean, depending on your viewpoint on the particular topic, was the the situation we saw with Rodri in the Man City game, where he was obviously clearly in an offside position where the ball came forward. Um, I think Mings controls the ball as the defender, and then Rodri nicks it off him, and, and City go ahead and score. This one, I think, is probably, for me, the most confusing of the situations <laughs> we've seen this season. For, for a lot of them, I've seen sort of a weird situation happen, and I've been able to sort of understand why the decisions ended up where it was. But for this one, I still, to this day, don't think I fully understand why that goal was allowed to stand. So I'm, I'm very keen to hear your full thoughts on it. Um, I know we sort of spoke about it briefly and, uh, on our chat recently, but I'd like to sort of hear hear your full views as a, as a referee as to why why that happened the way it did and how you think that kind of incident's going to be managed going forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a mess, wasn't it? I mean, and I say this as a Manchester United fan as well. So obviously, I had quite a lot riding on... Uh, a, Somehow, I don't know how that game was nil-nil anyway when it happened. But, but yeah, it was a shame. Basically, what happened is the the VAR interpreted the the law as it's written very literally. So he determined that Rodri was not offside because Mings had deliberately played the ball, and therefore the attacker Rodri uh, couldn't have gained an advantage because the phase of play had then been reset. Even though you know you just only have to watch the footage to actually see. Of course, he gained an advantage because he nicked the ball off him, then ran forward and passed to Bernardo Silva, who scored. By law, in terms of how it was written previously, it's correct because there was no allowance for the fact that Rodri could still be coming from uh, an offside position and be interfering with play in that instance, or interfering with Mings, I should say, as well. But yeah, and then I think it was on Tuesday this week, so a couple of, no, not a couple of days, like four or five days after the, the match happened, uh, I think the, the Premier League released a statement slightly changing the, uh, the interpretation of the law or allowing a little side note um, because it was deemed that what happened and the interpretation of the law being quite so literal was not in the spirit of the game, inverted commas. Um, and from now on, how a player becomes reinvolved in the game again after coming back from an offside position is actually what matters most. Obviously there, um, Rodri had a massive impact on not only that particular moment, but then in the, the changing of the match as well. In referee talk, we talk about match-changing incidents and that was absolutely a match-changing incident that probably should have gone the other way. But again, I can understand why the, the VAR made that decision and allowed the goal because, again, it was a literal interpretation of the law and that's essentially what the VAR was there for, even though everybody can see, of course, he's gained an advantage, even though the previous law, or not previous law, but the law as it was written without the clarification suggested
1: that Uh, Rodri
2: didn't gain an advantage, but of course he did.
1: Right, so apologies if this is a bit of a hospital pass at this point, but if you could change one thing about VAR to improve it over the longevity of the season or as to how we go forward using VAR, what would you change?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question and one that I haven't really prepared an answer for, but I think we have just kind of touched on probably the main thing that I would look to change Um, and that is probably the time taken for a decision to be made like when it comes to to re-watching 20 replays and the game is stopped for two or three minutes is it going to be a clear and obvious error obviously no like you know it shouldn't take as i say two or three minutes out of the game to have to check you know every single camera angle to confirm or deny a decision like that's probably the the main bugbear that i have and i know there was, there was an incident in Burnley Man United a couple of weeks ago as well, where I think there was about a five-minute stoppage when there was a, albeit a very complicated incident to, to have to go back through and look at. And, you know, in the referee's defence, I think it was Kevin Friend, he's just going through his due process with the VAR and sometimes they have to talk and and look things through and there were many elements to that particular decision. But are we really in a place where, you know, you want to take a, a good five minutes, I think it was, not as I said in that instance, out of the game? That's probably people's biggest problem with it. In, in as much as you can't always get the right decision or the correct decision or the most acceptable decision, as I keep saying. But yeah, I, I think people don't like to be kept waiting. And again, it's just another stick to beat the, the the system with if if too much time is taken.
1: All right, moving into our previews for the upcoming Premier League weekend, starting on Saturday with Everton versus Newcastle. I mean, Newcastle are just in a a dire state at the moment. Uh, Everyone's been saying it, all the pundits, everyone I've talked to about Newcastle. It seems like they're doomed and I don't think Steve Bruce is the guy that's going to get them out of the trouble they're currently in. I mean, they're they're in terrible, terrible form at the moment and the confidence must be rock bottom. You know, there's lack of identity at the moment and it's really not looking great for them for the rest of the season unless they can pick it up and it'll be interesting to see whether they can do it in this game. Obviously, Newcastle are facing Everton. It's a very tough game for them. Everton obviously flying high in the Premier League. They've managed to recover their little wobble halfway through this first half of the season. But, you know, since then, they've, they've really managed to manage the injuries that they had really well. they have now welcoming back all those players that they were missing for, for large periods. Uh, Calvert-Lewin's back and so's with Charleston. And I think once they have that attacking trio back, even James Rodriguez, they're going to be really difficult to contend with. And Yeah, I think it's bad news for Newcastle in this
0: game. Yeah, it would definitely seem that way. They're they're in a terrible run of form. I actually think this is probably a really, really easy game to predict. seems obvious where it's going to go. So one thing I wanted to actually ask your opinion on in this one was, how long do you think Steve Bruce has got in this job? I mean, do you think he's destined to be sacked? Or do you think the way Newcastle are run just means they'll they'll keep him in as long as they don't get relegated, they don't really care what, what position they finish in the league?
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. Obviously, we've seen previously with Newcastle, they bring in managers and they tend to let them see out the season, at least. we saw it with Alan Shearer in the year they got relegated in the Championship. They stuck with him until the, the very end of the season and, and then ended up sacking him. I think Rafa Benitez was a very similar situation, but I would be very surprised if they stick with Steve Bruce for the rest of the season, purely because of the football they've been playing recently. It's been so poor. They don't look like winning games at all, even in the week. Yes, they were in the game against Leeds, but they never looked like getting anything out of it. And you look at their last six games, you know, they're not scoring goals, they're just conceding. And it's almost fortunate for them that there are worse teams in the Premier League below them, because I think they would be well into the relegation zone otherwise. Yeah, I think
0: that's absolutely right. They're they're so lucky that teams like Sheffield United and West Brom are so bad this season, because, you know, Newcastle have have done themselves some favours by picking up a few wins earlier on here and there. And that's meant they're just above that level where they're really threatened by the drop. but. You have to say, you look at their form and realistically, they they are going to be very close to falling into the relegation zone in a couple of weeks if they don't turn it around. And I wonder if if that does happen, would that then force the hand of the owners to sort of say, actually, you know what, we can't afford to get relegated, you know, especially if, if Mike Ashley is still looking to sell the club at some stage. They're a much more interesting uh, prospect to buy as a Premier League club than they are as, a, as one of the many, many championship clubs. So he he can't afford to have them relegated. And I wonder if that will be the end of Steve Bruce if they start really looking in danger. And realistically, I don't think he could be too surprised if he did get the sack.
1: Not at all. And, you know, there are managers now who are probably looking at the Newcastle job and they're probably, you know, afraid of it. I don't think I'd want to come in at Newcastle in this stage of the season and try and save them from this relegation battle. There are managers out there, Eddie Howe, Frank Lampard recently, obviously now available for a job. But are they going to want to go anywhere near this job? I don't think so. So... It's a tough one for Newcastle one for their fans because ultimately I don't think they're going to be able to change anything and they might be stuck with Steve Bruce until the end of the season which is not looking great for them.
0: No, and I think ironically the one person that probably would have done a good job to keep them up and, and steady the ships, probably Sam Allardyce who's been there before. Um, knows the city, knows the fans. I know he probably didn't have sort of the greatest of terms with the fans when he left, but you know, he probably would have done a good job. But he's already joined up with West Brom, and it's not exactly going too well for him there, so yeah, I wonder wonder what's going to happen there. But it's it's not looking good for Newcastle, and for, for the few Newcastle fans that I know, I think they're probably having a pretty miserable season.
1: Yeah, one thing's for sure I think no matter what club Sam Aldice would have taken over, Newcastle or West Brom, I think he would have lost his record for leaving every team because they both look doomed to me. Yeah, I think you're probably right there.
0: Moving on to the next game of the weekend, we've got Crystal Palace facing Wall uh 13th in the league against 14th in the league. So this is a real sort of on the edges of the relegation zone but also on the edges of pushing into the top half. It's that sort of weird middle ground where you never really know who's going to come out of it at each end. Obviously I watched West Ham play against Crystal Palace uh midweek and was absolutely delighted to see Us beat them, and I thought they looked absolutely terrible again, as they have consistently for a lot of the last few games that they've played in. But then, as you know, we keep talking about Wolves; they're they're struggling to to pick up points as well. So I wonder if if this is going to be a bit of a stalemate. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, Crystal Palace have been that team this season where they're so reliant on Zaha that when he's not playing, they don't pick up results, and when he has played, they've been fortunate enough to to find themselves in 13th position because they've picked up enough points through him playing. Um, it's almost the opposite for Wolves who rely on him and us so much to pick up their points and he's not been in the team for them and you know it's kind of resulted in Wolves falling down the table and it's very unnatural for them to be 14th in the Premier League I think I don't think they've ever been this low since their promotion to the Premier League they've always been a top half team and it's probably the first struggle that Nuno's had as manager so it'll be difficult to predict where they're going to go from here they could go up or they could go down and it's an interesting clash because they both just signed strikers in this transfer window as well There hasn't been too much business this window, but we've seen Crystal Palace stash out for their new striker. I think his name's Mateta. Don't know too much about him, but he's got a half-decent record in, in Germany. So it'll be interesting to see what he can bring to the team. I think he's struggling with his work permit right now, which is pretty funny considering the the sign of the times and Brexit is so much more difficult now to get things over the line. But he's a Crystal Palace player. Whether he'll be able to play against Wolves, I don't know yet. And then it's a very similar situation for Wolves who have signed a striker themselves with William Jose, who I guess has been brought in to do what Jimenez has been doing for so long. But whether he'll be able to hit the ground running and fit into this very unique Wolves team, it will be interesting. Um, But yeah, it kind of is set up a little bit to be a bit of a stalemate. Um, Neither team have been too impressive lately. If I had to edge towards one team, I'd probably say Wolves. But I think it would be a narrow 1-0 if they do get the win.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I've gone for, is a 1-0 Wolves win. And I think it's, unfortunately for Palace, I, I can't see their fortunes turning anytime soon with their style of play and their over-reliance on Zaha. As you said, I think they're they're going to really struggle to get any consistent form going. I think I did see that uh, it looks as though their, their new striker will be able to play in this game. But, I mean, I'm not sure... He looks good, but I don't think he looks like the kind of player that's going to come in and and set their team alight and, and score loads of goals and get them the wins that they need. So they're probably still going to be heavily reliant on Zaha and end up struggling for that. Because I, from what I've seen of Zaha this season, although he still has moments of brilliance, I've been really put off by his attitude in the games. I think he looks petulant. He looks angry. He looks frustrated the whole time. Whenever one of his teammates plays a bad pass and it goes just past him, you can see his body language is clearly frustrated with them. And, and you can be the, the team's star player, but if you're going to start sort of showing that kind of attitude towards your teammates, I don't think you're going to be very popular in the dressing room either. So maybe something going on behind the scenes there, who knows?
1: Yeah, you put that very nicely, to be honest. Um, Wilfred Zaha is a bit of a dickhead. He's <laughs> been <laughs> that way for a long time now, and that's why opposing teams love to play him, because you can wind him up. And you can get him booked and you can get him sent off. We've seen it numerous times in the Premier League. James Will Prowse is especially good at it. Uh, those two are basically arch nemesis at this point. But, yeah, I, I don't know what his problem is with being a Crystal Palace player, but he doesn't seem to want to be part of that core unit. You know, doesn't seem to want to buy into their philosophy. He just wants to be the selfish player who is a star player. And he is that guy. Admittedly, he's, he's very good. But the way he comes across in terms of his personality on the pitch, um, would, I think would be a massive deterrent for teams looking
0: to buy him. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're one of the bigger clubs, the last thing you want is someone that's going to come in and cause trouble in the dressing room because that's just derails the whole team. And we've seen it happen in the past and managers are very, very wary of that kind of player at the moment. So he's he's not doing himself any favours and he's not doing his team any favours. So a bit of a trouble in paradise there for what used to be a, a love affair with the fans. I, I wonder if some of them might start to turn against him if he if he carries on the way he is.
1: Right, moving on then, we have Manchester City versus Sheffield United. At the moment, it's top versus bottom in the Premier League. And you would think the difference in these two teams is pretty substantial at this point. I mean, we've seen Man City just go from strength to strength recently. They've been the best team in the Premier League by a country mile. Not only have they been scoring goals, but they've been keeping clean sheets. They look almost impeligible as a defence now. And it's, you know, credit to, I guess, the system at Man City and how Pep's brought in these defensive players to build around. And finally, I think he's got the combination right. Um Diaz and Stones look like a really established internet partnership, and with Edison and Goal as well, it's going to be very difficult to score goals against. And then you look at the team they're up against in this matchup, Sheffield United, who have been almost the most goal-shy team in the Premier League this season without an established striker. You would think there's going to be a almost a cricket scoreline in this one because we saw what Man City did to West Brom in the week, and Sheffield United have been worse than West Brom this season. So, for my money, I think it's going to be a big scoreline. I predicted five 0 last time, and they got it spot on. But It'll be very interesting to see if Manchester City can keep up their goal scoring form without Kevin De Bruyne in their team. But I kind of fancy them to do it, to be honest. I can see another 3-4-0 prediction.
0: You know, we always say this about one game in the game week, but it seems like an absolute no-brainer, doesn't it? You you can't see... You you could put as much money as you want on Sheffield United to get something from this, and it's just not going to happen. There's teams that you can see, always see, bottom of the league getting a fluke result against, but this is not... A game where you can see that happening. City looks so in control of their position in the league at the moment. They've got the most solid defence. They've still somehow managed to maintain um an absolute lethal ability going forward despite not having a recognised striker playing most of the time and with players like Gundogan stepping up and scoring goals all over the shop. I mean, who would have called that when he signed? It's just not what you expect from him. So, you know, fair play to Pep, because once again, he's managed to pull something out of the bag. And I think it does show why he is one of the best managers in the world, that he can create this sort of feeling amongst the team where they feel like they're world beaters, even when they're missing some of their world beaters. Yeah, okay, they've still got world-class players playing in that team. It's not like they've got Kids playing all over the shop, but they're still doing a fantastic job. Um, as for Sheffield United, yeah, they you know they've had some decent results recently, especially in they're having a good run in the FA Cup, which will give them a good bit of morale. They got their win against Newcastle, so it's not as much doom and gloom as it was a few weeks ago. But they're still. They've still got a long way to go before they're even thinking about surviving this season, let alone finishing anywhere other than bottom of the table. So, yeah, I think I've gone with a, a 3-0 win for Man City in this one. What was your prediction?
1: Yeah, I'm going to match you, actually. I'm actually thinking that their goal rush might come to, a, like, not an end as such, but I think they'll just start to calm down a little bit because recently they've been putting four or five goals past every opponent and you'd think eventually, you know, maybe a team like Sheffield United might just give them an unexpected problem. Yeah. Um, not a problem as such if think are going to score three goals, but still. Yeah, that's what I'm go with. And I just want to touch on Pep, actually, because we saw earlier in the season that he was, you know, in negotiations to sign a new contract. We didn't know if he was going to stay, whether he was going to go. And I think we are now realising why he wanted to stay so much, because he's brought in so much defensive cover in this team, so much defensive ability that he, I'm sure he just wanted to see it play out and see how competitive they'd be this season. And as we're seeing, they are well up there. And if not, they're the team to beat now. So Credit to Pep for sticking with his project because, you know, he's been there for so long now that I think he just wants to see it through. And if he could see it through and win the league this season, I think it's a great story for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be. And I think fair play to him for sticking it out because there was definitely a time where the easy option would have been to call it a day on his time there, except that he won some great competitions with them, got a great trophy hall, put together one of the record beating teams in the Premier League. And then he could have moved on to maybe managing Italy and... You know, win another league title there, but he stuck it out, and I think a big part of that is he does still want to win the Champions League at Man City, and I think he's desperate for that. Um, whether that will happen this season, I'm not sure, because you can have great form in the league and then still come up against some formidable opponents in that in the Champions League. But he'll obviously want to do that, and I think we'll probably see him here for a good couple of seasons more, unless something goes horribly wrong. Okay, and then moving on from. A team flying high at the top. We've got 18th place against 19th place in our next game. An absolute massive uh, game for both of these teams. West Brom uh, facing Fulham. I mean, this is it's, this is a six-pointer if there ever was one, because whoever wins this game gives themselves a massive advantage and the team that loses is going to be in real, real trouble. So... The pressure is going to be on both of these teams. I think this is one of those rare occasions we've had this season where I think both sets of fans would be glad that it's an empty stadium because, firstly, I don't think you'd want to go to a game this stressful. And secondly, I don't think you'd want your players to be affected by the stress in the stadium either. So, I mean, it's a tough one to call. Neither team have been great, both on fairly poor form. How do you see this one going?
1: Yeah, as close as these two teams are in the league table, I actually see it being quite a one-sided matchup. Uh, West Brom have been dreadful. Even before Sam Allardyce came in, I thought they were in trouble. But he seems to have brought them almost nothing at this point. Defensive stability is his thing, and he hasn't done that. They shipped five goals against City, shipped a lot of goals against Arsenal and Leeds. And I just wonder why, you know, it's still happening with a manager of his ability at the helm now. It doesn't seem to have changed much. And that's a massive problem for West Brom because I don't think it's going to change now. I think he's had his initial period where you'd expect him to pick up points. as that little bounce you get with a new manager, but it's not happened. Whereas you look at Fulham, who, despite losing the last two games, they've not been outplayed in either game. And those are against good teams in the Premier League. Yes, a loss against Manchester United and a loss against Chelsea, but they only lost by one goal in both games. And before that, they had a fairly decent run of results. So for me, I think Fulham are a much better team than West Brom. And I hope they show it in this game because I think it's credit to Scott Parker that he's managed to get this team singing on the same song sheet because for so long they weren't doing that at the start of the season. And... Yeah, I honestly don't think it's going to be a massive scoreline because, like you said, it's a huge game and this tends to affect the score and, you know, how freely players play. But I do think Fulham are going to get the win, um, a 2-0 win as well.
0: This is getting embarrassing because I've gone for a 2-0 Fulham win. We're back to our old Not ways again. of the same <laughs> predictions. Um, but I think you, you've nailed it it's spot on. I mean, I, I was I was tempted by a 0-0 when I was making my predictions because, that you know, that's what we see in these games. And I think... If I'm right, I think the reverse fixture of this earlier on in the season, I think I predicted a 3-3 and it turned out to be like a 1-0 or something. It was really boring. But yeah, I do see Fulham winning this one. I've, I was looking at um, West Brom's sort of history this season. I think they've, if I'm right, they've kept two clean sheets all season and they were against Sheffield United and Burnley, two teams who notoriously just don't score lots of goals anyway. So their, their ability to defend is up there with the worst in the league. And, you know, is that really a surprise with the players that they've got playing in defence? You know, Kieran Gibbs, not at his peak of his career anymore. And then they brought in Ivanovic, didn't they, as obviously like the Premier League experience to come in and manage that defence. And that's been an absolute disaster. So I think Fulham will be looking forward to getting some goals in the net and and getting themselves a good three points. And that will give them a big advantage over West Brom for the rest of the season.
1: Yeah, I just feel sorry for Sam Johnson and goal for West Brom at the moment because... He's shown this season that he's a quality goalkeeper, yet they conceded 11 more goals than Sheffield United who are rock bottom of the Premier League. So, yeah, it must be a a tough job for him at the moment.
0: Yeah, it is tough, isn't it? Because he's clearly got fantastic ability and he deserves a huge amount of praise for some of the um, saves that he's made. And he's got a great sort of command of his box, but he's just being let down by the players around him massively. You can see him going... When, inevitably, West Brom get relegated, you can see him signing for another sort of mid-table Premier League club as maybe not their first choice, but a really, really solid backup keeper. And I think his time will come in the Premier League where he'll he'll be one of the best. He'll definitely be a, a mainstay in a lot of people's fantasy teams for the next few years.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think he's one of those players who will definitely get a move at the end of the season. We saw it with relegated teams last season. that tend to find their ways back into their Premier League and he's definitely one of those players that will look to do that, I imagine. Right, moving on, we have probably the biggest game of the weekend. Uh, Arsenal versus Manchester United, a, a game which historically has always provided a lot of entertainment, a lot of goals. And yeah, I don't really expect this to be any different, to be honest. I think both teams are bang in form at the moment and Arsenal are, are resurgent at the moment. You know, they, they've come so far from where they started the season. Uh, you go back a couple of months and they were fighting off relegation. Now they're on the brink of Euro- Europa League. So honestly, it's almost been impossible to predict what Arsenal are going to produce this season, but they do seem to have finally found something that they can hold on to in terms of how they play and it's credit to the young players that have come into the team because they've done really well and if, if anything they've been the most important players in this team now. Uh, Saka and Mill Smith-Rowe have been revolutionary for this team and now they've brought in Martin Odegaard as well, another young player who could potentially do the same thing across that attacking three. So it's very interesting to see where Arsenal go for the rest of the season. Then Manchester United obviously have been flying as well, uh, scoring goals left, right and centre. Fernandez being influential as ever. So yeah, I think it's set up to be one of the better games of the season, for sure.
0: Yeah, and it, it's, as we've said before, it's historically, it was a huge clash, uh, massive rivalry, and I've I've said before, I'd love to see it get back to that, because they're two teams that we, we grew up watching fight out for these titles. And yeah, as you said, I mean, massive, massive respect to Arteta for turning around the form, because so many managers would have just crumbled under that. We were saying a lot of stuff about, you know, has he lost the dressing room, has he has he got the right tactical mind to do it has he got the right players where does he turn it around and he's he's turned to the youth and it's worked miracles and absolutely fair play to him because i did not see this turn of form coming and they've they've become a team that are competing to be right at the very top you know they're sitting in eighth position at the moment they're only four or five points off the champions league places so they're, they're in a huge position to actually push on from this and, and fight for the Euro, for the European places, which no one would have seen coming a few weeks ago. So yeah, I think you're right. Two teams banging form should be a really exciting game. It's not that kind of game like we saw Man United-Liverpool in the league where they're two teams in form, but they you know they play out a stalemate. I think this could be a really free-flowing game. Their styles of football should work perfectly to allow that to happen. So I'm, I'm excited for this one. It's definitely one that I'll be trying to watch um, over the course of the weekend.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm going to push you for a prediction, though. I'm going to go mm-hmm. for a two-all draw. Uh, I think it will be a very close game, and I don't think a draw really damages either team too much, so that's what I'm going to go with.
0: Nice. I was worried when you said the two, because I've gone for a 2-1 win to Man United. So, similar predictions, but I, I do think United will have just a little bit too much. I think you know they've got some real experience in that team that could potentially take advantage of, of some of the more youthful aspects of um, Arsenal's team. That's not to say that Arsenal's youthful players haven't got the ability, because I think they've been fantastic. But I think in a game of this magnitude, sometimes that experience and that depth of, of team that United have got will quite often win through. But I don't think it will be comfortable. I think there's, it's going to be exciting. There'll be chances at both ends and hopefully a bit of controversy again as well, because we all enjoy
1: that in these big games. Yeah, very true. Um, just a quick question from me. I don't know how much you know about Martin Odegaard, uh, whether you've heard about him, uh, watched him play. Yeah, what do you think as, of that for, as a signing? Do you think he's going to be a success at Arsenal? Or do you think he's a little bit young to bring in and rely upon week after week? Or do you think he's going to set the Premier League alight?
0: Yeah, I actually know him very well, having managed him for about 12 seasons in my um, FIFA career modes. <laughs> he was the first signing I used to make in a lot of uh, a first lot name of seasons. Faces. Exactly, yeah. Good old Martin. We get on well. No, in, in all seriousness, I think it's a good signing for Arsenal. They've they've let Ozil go and they've brought in Odegaard to replace him, um, which is not a joke that I've made up on the spot. I've seen it all over the place on Twitter. So I can't take any credit for that. But I think he's a good player to bring in. A young player with tons of potential, huge amount of skill. If you think of a player and think of like skills and goals compilations on YouTube, he's up there with the ones you always see. So, you know, he's, he has got a huge amount of talent. So I'm excited to see him in the Premier League. I hope he's not going to be a signing that comes in and warms the bench for the whole season. I hope he does get a chance to come in and play in that team because I think he could do a great job, especially with the other young players they're bringing through. It could be a really exciting team that Arsenal will build in there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be really good for Arsenal to, you know, bred him into the team and, it would be interesting to see if they sign him on a permanent deal at the end of the season, if it is successful. I think it would be a really good signing for them going forward, a nice young signing, Uh someone that's got like abundance of potential as well. So it could be very interesting for Arsenal to see if he gets that game time. OK, moving on to Southampton against Aston Villa, Um a game I probably would have been quite optimistic about a couple of weeks ago, but recently we've really started to drop off in terms of form, mainly down to injuries, in my opinion. I think we've been badly hit recently with some injuries to some really key players, and unfortunately that's... Hit our momentum and you know we're starting to fall down the table a little bit but i don't think it's anything to worry about necessarily i think we've just been really unlucky with key players dropping out of the team at key times um it's a tough matchup though aston villa have been flying this season i've uh, seen all year jack Grealish is the man to stop and again scored again in the week against burnley but yeah i think it's gonna be a tough matchup for us um, especially if we do have these key players missing our left and right back at the moment bertrand and Kyle walker peters are debatable to make this game so Without them, I think we could struggle against the attacking caliber that Aston Villa have. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting matchup for us.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right about the injuries, and I know we've spoken about this. But I think in situations like this, where you lose several key players, sometimes you get lucky and you can you can ride through that and pick up some wins. But most likely, what's going to happen is you end up dropping some points in games that you otherwise feel like you should win, and it's hugely frustrating as a fan to watch it. I've seen it time and time again with West Ham where we've had awful injuries all season and it's been really frustrating knowing what could have been if those players were fit and I think unfortunately that's the period that, that Southampton are going through at the moment. In some ways it makes that 1-0 win against uh, Liverpool even more impressive because that was with some of those key players missing so shows even more how how much of a good result that was. I think this is, is a game that I've put down as a draw, I've put down as a 1-1 draw. Um, I, I think a few games ago, you're absolutely right, I would have gone for Southampton to win it all over. But then, you know, earlier today, I was thinking, well, probably Aston Villa win this one. But then they've sort of capitulated a bit against Burnley midweek and showed a bit of weakness there. And I think I spoke last week about the fixture congestion, catching up with Villa after having so long off and then having so many games coming thick and fast. I do think that's playing a factor and I think it probably will continue to play a factor into this game. And that's why I've not gone for them to win. I think probably a draw is a fair result. And I think given how decimated your squad is at the moment, I think it would be a good result for Southampton in the circumstances.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. And that's why I've gone with the same scoreline, <laughs> which is uh, almost calmer at this point, isn't it? So we can start coughing each other's answers. But uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to have it quite in us to get the better of Aston Villa, unfortunately. If we do have one of those two wingbacks missing, it's going to be Difficult for us to play the same way we've been playing all season. And I'm hoping the games do catch up with Aston Villa because I don't think a fully fit Aston Villa would struggle against us too much at the moment. So... That's what I'm going to go with, a 1-0 draw. Again, a quick question on Aspen Villa: Obviously, they've signed uh, a Sanson this window, a really experienced European player who's got Champions League experience with Marseille. Do you, do you expect them to now push on towards European spot uh, with these signings? Or do you think they're just going to build for next season and try and you know, push on next year?
0: It's a really tricky one because some of the form they've shown suggests that they absolutely should be pushing for Europe. And you think the signing of Sanson is a clear sign of their intention to do that. He is a player that's played in Europe and consistently played in Europe. So... You have to think that for him to have signed for Aston Villa, there must have been a promise of that that's their intention is to push for those places. Which sounds like a silly thing to say, because surely every club's intention is to push to finish as high as possible. But he must have seen something in the team to think they've actually got a potential of getting there. I think they can do it. I, I think a huge amount of it is going to come down to exactly what we've just said, this fixture congestion and the fatigue they've they've been the worst hit by COVID this season. They've still got two games in hand over most of the teams around them. So those two games have got to be played somewhere. And especially with a lot of the other teams around them playing in the cup games, there's not that much opportunity for them to play those games. So they're going to get wedged into points where they don't really want to be playing. And I think that might come back to bite them, which will be hugely unfortunate for them given how well they've played and a situation outside of their hands would would take that away from them. But Yeah, I think going back to the actual signing of this particular player, it's definitely a sign of intention. It's a good signing for them. And I actually think it might free up Grealish a bit more to, to push forward and have to do slightly less defensive duties than he's had to so far this season because there's other players there now to cover him and, and maybe that will allow him to become even more prolific than he has done
1: so far. Yeah, definitely. Big signing for By all accounts, I think it's really impressive and it shows their intent. Right, moving on. Big game, really. I mean, it's not a huge game in terms of matchups, but it's a huge game, really, because we've seen this week that Chelsea have sat their manager and Frank Lampard is no more. In comes Thomas Tuchel for Chelsea. And they face Burnley. Um, admittedly, it's not his first game in charge. They played Wolves in the week and drew 0-0. But I guess this is be his first proper game in charge. He'll have worked with the team at this point, had some training sessions, and be able to get across his philosophy and how he wants the team to play. Not the easiest game to start with, though. Uh, Burnley have been pretty good lately. And we saw in the week they got a huge result against Aston Villa, coming back twice in the game to win 3-2. It'll be very interesting to see how... Thomas Tuchel gets this Chelsea side going we saw Frank Lampard struggled immensely trying to get these new signings bedded in and failing to do so and ultimately costing him his job so do you think Thomas Tuchel was the man to turn it around at Chelsea?
0: That's a a really tough question isn't it because I mean as you said we've seen Lampard really struggle he's got a huge task on his hand to come in and, and turn this around because they're not in good form and the, the problems he's inherited are the same problems that Lampard battled with, obviously, in that there's there's so many players in that team that sh- all feel like they should be in the starting 11. He's got to manage that. Interestingly, obviously, a huge part of what people were talking about when he joined was you know, players like Havertz and, and Werner were most likely going to be sort of mainstays in the team who want to get them in and play. Obviously, his 1st lineup against Wolves midweek, he started without Werner and actually towards the end, took Giroud off and brought on Tammy Abraham instead of Werner and left Werner on the bench for the entire game. Whether he's giving him a rest before playing him at the weekend or whether that's a sign of his intentions to maybe make Werner fight for his place in the team, I don't know. It's um, surprised me, to be honest, and I I think it probably surprised quite a few Chelsea fans as well to see Werner not getting involved in that game at all. But he did leave Havertz on the pitch for the entire game, so there's probably some sign to his intentions there as well. I think the key part for me is that he's got to find a starting eleven that works. And then he's got to manage the expectations of the players that find themselves not in that starting eleven. It sounds really simple when you put it like that, but it's not going to be simple at all. And I think he has got a huge job in his hands. And honestly, I don't even want to try and predict where they're going to finish this season because I think it's just such a difficult one to call. I mean, what about you? Do you think you see where this is going? Or do you agree that it's just going to be a whirlwind for him?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think most of the pundits this week have come out and said that Sacking like Frank Lampard doesn't really achieve much short term because you're bringing in a manager who's going to have the same problems. I don't really think Frank Lampard was the problem. Yes, they weren't playing well, but I think that was mainly down to the personnel and the team just underperforming. And, you know, when you're spending a combined 80 million on two players in the team and they're not doing anything every game, I think it's a, a problem for every manager in the league, not just Frank Lampard. And unfortunately, he was the one that suffered for it. I guess the only counter argument is that Thomas Tuchel has a lot of experience managing some big egos in his time in different clubs. He's managed. Mbappe and Neymar at PSG and I would have thought that's going to help him try and almost win round some of these players who have probably fallen out of love a little bit of Chelsea Uh, especially Werner especially Havertz players who haven't really got used to the Premier League and I think maybe he'll sit them down and be like you know this is how I want you to play and if you don't play this way then you know we'll move you on in the summer blah 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 but I think it's a good sign that they've gone for a, a high caliber manager I think he is someone who's used to winning and will probably instill that mentality into the Chelsea players but Again, it's going to be a very tough season for them going forward. I think they'll struggle to get any real momentum going, especially within the next couple of games because they've got some tough fixtures. And I don't think this is an easy one either. I spoke earlier about Burnley and how well they did to come back against Aston Villa, but we completely forgot to talk about their win at Anfield last week. The one team to beat Liverpool at Anfield in about three years. And yeah, that's some achievement and we've not even spoken about it. So I don't know if you want to say something about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a result that was! I didn't see it coming. I think before uh, the Man United game at Anfield, I think I remember saying in our episode that you know I wanted to see United end Liverpool's run there because the last thing we wanted to see was a team like West Brom end the run. And I think we got almost the next best thing with Burnley ending <laughs> the run, didn't we? But yeah, I mean, they they played that game to perfection. They they made it impossible for Liverpool to break them down. Liverpool were resorting to playing this weird little ball into the box from the sort of just outside the penalty area, wide areas. They did it about fifty times, and it just never came off because Burnley had four or five men in that area the whole time, up against someone like Salah or Mane, who was never going to win a header in that situation. They made it impossible. They played the defensively. They played it perfect, and they had that outlet with with Barnes going up the front, up the top, and causing trouble for Liverpool's defense when he did get up there, and obviously then winning that penalty it was an absolute robbery in terms of sort of what you would expect from it, but they did it perfectly and they deserve a huge amount of praise for it. And I think it's always a shame when results like this happen and people talk too much about why Liverpool were terrible. Don't give Burnley enough praise for how well they executed their game plan.
1: Yeah, it was a textbook smash and grab, wasn't it? It was hold on for eighty minutes, hope for that little chance. And that's exactly what they got out of Allison. that little touch on Ashley Barnes's foot and, you know, put away the penalty and the rest is history. Um, Do you think Burnley can repeat the The performance against Chelsea, do you think they can upset them?
0: I don't think so, because I don't think Chelsea play the same style of football that Liverpool do. And I think it will be harder for Burnley to find an opportunity where they can break away and get a goal or or get a, a moment like that. I see this being more of a sort of endurance test for Burnley in terms of just still holding on in the same way as they had to do against Liverpool. I think their chances to get up the pitch themselves will be sort of further, fewer and further between than they were in that game. I'm I'm very, very prepared to be proved horribly wrong, though, because that's often the case in these games. I mean, what what do you think? Do you think Burnley have still got a chance in this one?
1: I've been a fairly avid fan of Burnley this season. I'm not really watching their games, but I do rate them to get good results in games they probably shouldn't. I did back them to win against Aston Villa in the week, and they did that. I'm not going to be quite as optimistic in this game for them. I don't think they'll be able to sustain that form. Two wins in a row is obviously great for them, but... I do think Thomas Tuchel might be able to get a performance out of Chelsea uh, after he's had some time with them. So I've gone for a narrow 2-1 win for Chelsea. I don't know if you agree.
0: Oh, dear. I've gone for a 2-1 win to Chelsea.
1: (laughs) Of course you have. We're going to have to
0: start consulting each other before we record these because this is uh, getting silly. Um, But yeah, no, I have gone for a 2-1 for Chelsea. I I do think that's how it's going to go. I just wanted to ask your opinion on Lampard again. I mean, where, where do you think what's his next move? Where does he go? I imagine he'll take a bit of a break before he goes anywhere new, gather his thoughts, lick his wounds a bit. And then, I mean, where does he go? There was talk of him at Newcastle. I saw The Sun, which we don't like to talk about, but The Sun commenting on the idea that he might come to West Ham, which is the most ludicrous idea I've ever heard. Don't even want to give that any airtime, really. So feel feel free to cut that out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, what, what do you think? I saw him being linked with the England job as well. I mean, what do you make of that?
1: Honestly, I think it's all a bit up in the air, I guess, at this point. I don't think he's going to rush back into management. And I think it's probably sensible for him not to do so. I think it's probably hurt him quite a lot losing this job because, you know, it's Chelsea through and through to get your dream job and then be sacked. From what sounds like a, you know, pretty harsh backdoor way, not being able to say goodbye to his players doesn't seem like the right thing to have done um, from an Abramovich point of view. But that's how they went about it. And for me, I think he just needs to take a little bit of a break from football in general. Maybe it was starting to wear him out a little bit, the stress of the job. Inevitably, there will be a chance for him to come back into the Premier League. Whether it will be for a top team, I don't really think so anymore. I think maybe he's had his chance at an elite club and maybe he'll have to build his way up with someone, you know, lower in the Premier League. Um, I don't want to name too many clubs in case I offend them, but, you know, calibre of, you know, a top 10 team. But yeah, I think it's really unfair on him. And I think he can rightfully be pretty proud of what he achieved with Chelsea. I think last season, especially breading in those young players and getting good results of them as well was great to see it's just unfortunate he wasn't able to see out the season because I think that's the least he deserves a player of his caliber and a player of his you know worth to Chelsea he gave so much to the club to be dismissed like that I thought was a pretty harsh move
0: yeah I think there's definitely an element of how harsh it was and you know football is a ruthless business in that sense and we've seen Abramovich is not afraid to be ruthless but I have to agree I think that the manner in which it was done was not um, very tasteful I think he deserved a bit more respect as a the, the club legend that he is. At the end of the day, you know, from Bramovich's point of view, it's a results business and they needed to, to turn it around. But I do agree with what you said earlier. I don't necessarily think sacking Lampard mid season solves all of their problems. So We'll have to wait and see what happens over the rest of the season, but so long to Lampard. and um, I'm sure we'll see him back in the game at some point, but I doubt he's going to be jumping back in straight away. Uh, Moving on to the next game then, Leicester are taking on Leeds. Leicester up at the top of the table, having a really good season and Leeds pulling out great results every other week and then getting absolutely trashed the next week. I've I've said many a time, Leeds are the hardest team to predict this season. So, I mean, I'm going to let you go first and hope that you've not gone for the same result as
1: me. Oh, great. Thanks, mate. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a really tough matchup, to be honest. I've really enjoyed watching both teams this season especially Leeds and the unique way they play and then we've seen recently of Leicester you know they've just been winning games really comfortably and they look like genuine title contenders so two really good teams. One thing that does worry me about this matchup especially for Leicester is that they don't have Jamie Vardy and similar to other teams in the Premier League who rely so much on one player they are one of those who unfortunately don't have a a reserve striker to come in and score goals for them. Ian Nacho, we've seen enough this season to suggest that he's not going to be that guy for them so it's worrying with him out of the team for them because I know that's who they rely on so much. And if anything, if I was Leeds, I'd play exactly on that weakness. I would try and neutralise Ihe Nacho, prevent him from playing, prevent their attacking players from getting forward, like Madison and Barnes, and play the way that Leeds play. Just take the game to them and hope it's enough to get the result because... We've seen so often this season they can just score goals out of nothing and maybe this is a good time to play Leicester in terms of their injuries and they might be a little bit vulnerable. But yeah, honestly, I'm not sure which way this is going to go. I've gone for a draw, I've gone for a two-all draw. If you put down the same thing, then yeah, I guess we'll just copy each other's predictions for the rest of the episode.
0: (laughs) No, see, I've actually, I've written down a 2 nil Leicester win, but when I was doing these, I'd forgotten completely about Jamie Vardy being out, uh, which is a fairly vital part of the equation. (laughs) But I'm going to back myself. I'm going to stick with my 2 0 prediction because I don't like to change them once I've written them down. It's sort of my, my little rule. So, yeah, Leicester 2 0 win. I don't know where the goals are going to come from. But, well, no, that's probably unfair. I mean, I guess Barnes and Madison and the players in that team have still got the potential to score the goals. So, it's not the most ridiculous prediction ever, even without Vardy. But it's probably not going to be quite as straightforward as I thought it might be. I just find with Leeds, you never know what Leeds are going to turn up. And I didn't see it myself, but I saw. Uh, a comment from a journalist who was at the uh, Leeds-Newcastle game midweek said that pretty much the entire Leeds team collapsed on the ground in exhaustion at the end of their game. Obviously, we've talked a lot, or there's been a lot of press about the way Leeds play and can they maintain it for the whole season. A lot of their fans get very upset when we talk about this because they like to point out that their running stats actually improved towards the end of last season. Might have had something to do with the fact we had a massive COVID break in the middle that gave them all a chance to recover. And also... With all due respect to the Champions League, the intensity and the pace in terms of the consistent level of performance that you need is not going to be the same as it is in the Premier League. So I do think there's a chance that the fatigue comes in towards the end of the season and really scuppers Leeds. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that's a genuine thing? Or do you think that's just sort of journalists and and myself jumping on a a bandwagon and getting a bit carried away with it?
1: Yeah, it's starting to sound a lot like Karen Carney over there. Um, (laughs) She made some very similar points about Leeds potentially burning out towards the end of the season. Personally, I don't think it's going to happen. I think they've got enough players in their squad probably to replace, to prevent that from happening, but I guess it is a worry for them that their intensity is going to catch up, and if it does, I imagine it's going to be a very tough situation for them to deal with because you can't have just, say, 15 players out on their feet every game, but that's what Bielsa demands and that's how they play, so it's worked for them up until this point, so I think it should be all right for the end of the season at least. and then we'll see if he changes his methods next season because we've seen this year that it's going to be very difficult for them to play the same way as they played in the Championship.
0: Yeah, it is. But the thing with Bielsa is I just can't see him changing his style of play. It's, it's, it is it's his philosophy and it's so ingrained in his in him that I just don't see anything changing. So whether he is sort of not suited to the Premier League in that sense. I think that would probably be stating sort of overstating a bit. But yeah, we'll have to wait to the end of the season to see. But I, I personally think the signs are there that they are going to struggle with it. Um, so I'm, I'm keen to see how that plays out over the next few weeks. Okay, so moving on to the next match, West Ham taking on Liverpool. I mean, at the time of recording, this is West Ham in fourth against Liverpool in fifth. May not be the case by the time we get to the the time this podcast is released. But yeah, very exciting times for me as a West Ham fan. Absolutely loving life. Best I've seen us play probably ever um, in terms of consistent form and being able to grind out results and get the wins where we need to. I'm really, really loving watching us at the moment, going into games with a lot of confidence. Which is very unusual for me, and then obviously, yeah, Liverpool not on great form, zero wins from their last five Premier League games, one goal in those games. But then obviously, they did score a couple against United in the FA Cup, so the signs are there that they potentially still got the uh, the ability to to uh, to turn it around and and cause us some problems. I really really struggled calling this because my my brain tells me that at some point our winning run has to end, and if a team's going to end it, it's surely going to be Liverpool. But then my heart tells me that we're going to win every game until the end of the season, and I've got the Champions League anthem playing on repeat every day. So I don't know what. what give me an impartial view on this one, and let me know what you think.
1: Ah, oh, God, it's tough. I would like to be impartial, but turns out I hate West Ham <laughs> internally, apparently, because all of my predictions uh, tend to yeah. go against West Ham. It is a very tough matchup, and if anything, it's probably the best time you could be playing. Liverpool. Their form's been so up and down recently, and if anything, this is the worst they've played probably in two, three years. So you would think. It's the best time to play them, and obviously with your form, uh, you know, one, winning the last four games in the league is probably, you know, more in favor of a West Ham win than it is a Liverpool win. But as we've seen with Liverpool so often, they can just turn it on like that. And we saw, despite their loss in the FA Cup, they were able to score goals. They were able to break down a, you know, a very informed Manchester United. And I guess a lot will depend on Mohamed Salah and whether he can get into positions and score. Because I think if he can get into positions, he, he is clinical enough to punish you. One thing I've noticed actually is that although you've been winning a lot of your games recently, it's only been by a one-goal margin. And I think it's very difficult to win games against Liverpool by a one-goal margin. Yes, Southampton did it, but I think that was a blip. And I think you will have to score more than one goal against Liverpool to get a result in this game. So I do think you're going to score, if that's any consolation to you. But I do think you're going to lose 2-1. I think Liverpool can only keep losing games for so long. And I think this might be the game that they break out of their funk and, and get that long overdue win. Yeah, um, and I've gone with
0: a 2-1 Liverpool win. (laughs) (laughs) This is getting silly. Um, But no, I think you're, honestly, I think you're right. That that, uh, one goal margin that you pointed out there is absolutely spot on. It's something that I noticed um, and have been noticing recently. And I finally thought we'd got over that yesterday and then uh, Palace scored in the 97th minute to make sure it was a one-goal margin win again. But, you know, as, as, in terms of the past results, I don't really care what the margin of victory was. They're, they're great results and we're doing really well. But I do agree with you. I think you you need more than a narrow win To overcome Liverpool. I mean, obviously Burnley did it, but that's very different. I don't think we'll let Liverpool play the same way that Burnley did. We're not going to sit back and soak up the pressure for 90 minutes. I think we'll take it to them. I think we'll go out there playing to win and hoping to win and arguably expecting to win. And I think, unfortunately, that will actually be what ends up costing us the win because probably the sensible way to play against Liverpool would be to sit back and try and soak up the pressure make it difficult for them and try and get a goal on the counter but you know I I wouldn't want us to play like that even if it is the way that would get us the result it sounds like a weird thing to say but I'd rather see us go out there and fight for it and if we do get the win I want us to deserve it for playing football the way we've been playing it rather than giving Liverpool too much respect and adapting our winning formula to, to suit them. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think Liverpool will probably come away with a win on this and it will be uh, our first defeat in a while, which is going to be hard to handle, to be honest.
1: It'll be hard to handle, but you're well used to it. Um, (laughs) Moving on, we will finish out this game week with Brighton versus Tottenham. Brighton, obviously, a team who just can't buy a win at home. I think the last time they won at home was in February 2020. It's almost been a full year since they won a home game. And, you know, they're coming up against Tottenham side who are just full of goals. Really bad matchup for Brighton and... I think Tottenham are starting to refine that early form a little bit. They've kind of found Ndombele uh, a place in the team and he's really starting to influence their play. He's starting to get forwards and, you know, we saw against Sheffield United, he got a goal, a really well-taken goal as well. And when you've got other players contributing goals, as well as Kane and Son, I think it's going to be really tough for teams to try and compete with them, Um, especially against Brighton, who just, yeah, like I said, they don't turn up at home. So, it should be one-way traffic, I imagine.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with you. I think uh, it's perfectly set up for Spurs to win. Brighton, just yeah, they're not finding it easy to get wins in this league at all. You know, even the games they have won, they've not looked comfortable they've looked really shaky and I think they they're another team that you would have to say they're lucky that there's other teams around them that are worse because otherwise they would be in the relegation zone and as it is they're only one place above the relegation zone albeit they do have a fairly decent points buffer to the next team below them but they're just a really poor team to be honest there's no easy way to say it and I think Tottenham will take full advantage of that um, I think they will come away with the win. I've gone with a 2-0 win, and I'm just really hoping that you've not gone with the same.
1: Oh, it was close, but I've actually gone for 3-0. I think it's going to be more convincing than that. Uh, Brighton at home, they're not scoring goals, they're not winning games, so I don't see how they're going to be competitive in this one. It's a shame because they do play some good football at times, but the fact they've not won a game since you know almost a year ago says a lot about their potency in front of goal and yeah it's you know it's almost one of the easiest games to predict this weekend
0: yeah and I think if, if any team needs some reinforcement in the transfer window you'd say Brighton have got to be one of those um they need they need someone that's going to be a, a talisman that start scoring goals I don't think they can rely on Neil Mopay and, and obviously Welbeck who I think I think Welbeck's injured at the moment. Um surprise surprise they definitely need someone to come in and and take the lead and become their goal scorer because if they don't have that I just don't see how they're going to win games there's too many good teams in the Premier League to rely on average
1: strikers to get you through it Um, and I think that's going to be their downfall yeah I think the rest of the season could be a bit of a struggle for Brighton all right and that brings an end to this episode of the 3PL podcast a big thank you to Jasper for coming on and chatting with us And finally, a big thank you to everyone out there who continues to listen each week. We'll be back again next week to preview all the upcoming games in the Premier League. Until then, make sure you are following us on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And also make sure you're subscribed on YouTube to never miss an episode. And we'll catch you all again next week.